Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, well, let's uh, find our place this morning in Matthew chapter 12 as we continue on, pressing on through Matthew's Gospel and the changes that are taking place in the ministry that Jesus is engaged in as He's traveling. And today, we're going to see even more about opposition opposition that Jesus faces seems like the more he says the more he does the more places he goes more people seem to be opposing what he's doing now as you're finding your place there in Matthew 12 let me just tell you a little bit about myself now I learned stuff about myself I, I try to pay attention when that happens. And uh, here's something I'm learning lately. I've said this before, so I'm, I'm going to just repeat myself. I know some of you might think it, you think it's funny when I say this, because maybe you think I'm just trying to, you know, be funny, but I'm really not. I am, I'm a terrible person. I, I really am. And I find out more and more about that seems like every week something happens and I react to something. And specifically though, today, I'm sitting here reading this scripture over and over and over and watching how Jesus responds to opposition and watching how He speaks and what He does and realizing I'm supposed to be paying attention to what He does and how He responds and I'm supposed to be patterning my life after that. Right, his example, and then so I, then I learn how much I don't do that. So here here's some examples. Like say something happens that I don't like, or somebody says something to me that I don't like, or maybe it's something trivial, maybe it's something really insignificant, and it's just annoying. And then maybe a bunch of those little insignificant things start piling up. And so then my, uh, the, the annoying feeling that I get is not just one little thing, it's a bunch of little things stacked on top of one another. And so then here's how I react. Here's my default. Usually, I'll respond very poorly. Like I'll, I'll get mad, I'll, um, I'll either have a, an ugly look on my face or I'll say something in, in anger. Um, and y'all think I'm, you, you might think I'm just using this as an illustration. I'm not. I ask my wife, ask my kids, and their observation. I, I, my default reaction to something that is not good is usually not good. Right? If I take a moment and just, just think about things, even if it's just like 10 seconds, if I would just take a moment and consider, okay, what does this matter in the grand scheme of things? In the scope of eternity, how much does this matter? If I were to just do that, just take those few seconds and do that, I probably wouldn't react the way I do. But I don't do that. 
right, Drew? I just like, you know, it just, it just happens. I react in the heat of a moment, and so I say something I shouldn't have said, or I, I say it in a way I shouldn't have said it, or worse yet, this is the worst, I might just not say anything. And I'm just sitting there trying not to explode. And I'm just like, you know, I'm just, I try to keep a straight face. I try to not say anything. I might close my eyes, just, you know, just just sit a second. Because so, I know my tendency is to say something I shouldn't or react in a way I shouldn't. Is anybody else identifying with this? Or is it just me? Because this, this is, this is, I'm just trying to be honest. Because... That's, that's what happens. And so then, when I read the Scripture like today, uh, and we're, we're going to read it, and, and then you're going to think, if you hadn't read it already, you're going to, hopefully, maybe some lights are going to shine in on your own life, and then maybe you'll see some things, okay, maybe I don't react like I ought to react. Maybe I need to take a little bit more time and, and pay a little bit more attention to what Jesus is doing and maybe pattern my life more after His life. Because that's really the goal, right? Romans 8.29, because Romans 8.28 is talking about everything working together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Well, what's that good? What does that look like? Romans 8.29. Be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. I'm supposed to be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. And tomorrow, if He gives me tomorrow, I'm supposed to be more like Jesus tomorrow than I was today. It's supposed to be a progression. That's, that's called, in theological terms, progressive sanctification. You're, you're in a process. You're becoming more like Jesus. That's what's supposed to be happening. Sometimes it feels like you're doing okay. Sometimes not so much, right? That's why Eric has to tell me every single Sunday, be nice. And I just look at him with that understanding look and say, I'll try. But sometimes it doesn't always happen. So let me, uh, let me read Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. We'll go down to verse 21. And we have a treat for us today. Uh, a lengthy quote from the Old Testament. The longest Old Testament quote in the entire Gospel of Matthew is today. So, Here's what God's Word says to us today, beginning in verse 9. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired, literally took counsel against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there 
many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak clearly to our hearts today, help us understand your word, and Lord, please help us apply this truth. Help us be obedient. Help us not to just hear it and then cast it aside. But help us put this into practice. And Lord, guide my words, guide my spirit, and help me to be faithful to your truth. For your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This, this text, I struggled with the right points to put into this message. I, I struggled with how to word things. I try to word the, the principles into application points so the points are actually things we should be doing. And that sometimes is a challenge. But today's just two points, two paragraphs, two points. The first one is simply this. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Jesus is moving from the outdoors to the indoors. If you recall last week, the first eight verses of this chapter, they were walking through, he and his disciples, walking through grain fields. Right? And the Pharisees are watching. It's like they're watching everything he does. And so they pick apart something the disciples are doing, and they fuss at Jesus about it, and he quickly responds and kind of puts... The Pharisees in their place, to be honest. He, he asked them, have you not read this? I'm talking about Old Testament law. Have you not read this? And then the third thing, don't you understand what this means? You know, they're supposed to be religious teachers, and he's kind of showing their ignorance, which is, to me, is hilarious. But that didn't apparently cause them to back up at all, because here they are again. So Jesus has now moved from outdoors to indoors. He goes into their synagogue. So now he's inside the place of worship. The Sabbath day is still the focus of the argument and there's a man there who's injured, has a, 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 a sickness in his hand. It says his hand is withered. So it's not a life-threatening injury, but nevertheless it requires healing. So the Pharisees ask Jesus a question again. Apparently they had not learned their lesson. And simply, here's the question. Is it lawful? So they're picking on the law again. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, now, why would they ask him this question, honestly? Why would they choose to phrase it that way? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Do you know why? What's Jesus going to do? He's going to heal them, man, right? Yeah, that's, his, that's his mode of operation. What's, what's he been doing since the very beginning? He's been teaching... In their synagogues, he's been healing every kind of sickness and disease, and he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's, that's the three things he's been doing consistently. So they're watching him, obviously. 
So what, what do they expect? Well, he's probably going to heal this guy. So we'll ask him and catch him uh, according to the Sabbath law. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, here's the other little detail. The Pharisees are not concerned one little bit with that man. They don't care about him at all. They don't care that he's got a withered hand and he needs healing. They don't care. All they care about is how can we get Jesus and trap him and make him be guilty of something. That's all they care about. So, just so you know the context, these religious leaders, they don't care about the people at all. Not one little bit. They just, the only thing they're worried about is Jesus presents a threat to our authority and our position. How can we get rid of him? So just so you know, that's the motive behind their question. Jesus responds with great wisdom and a little wit also. He says, if your sheep... I'm going to just kind of make this more concise. If your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, aren't you going to get it out? Of course they are. So... What is the point Jesus is trying to make? You see this man? Do you know how much more valuable this human being is than a sheep? You would help your animal on the Sabbath. And you're worried about what I'm going to do or not do with this man that's created in God's image. He's an image bearer of Almighty God. And you're worried about how I'm going to treat him. All because it's a Sabbath day. See, they don't care about the people. There's no compassion. There's no love. There's no mercy in them at all. It's just, are you checking all the boxes on the law here? That's all they're worried about. And so, the point Jesus makes is humanity is so much more valuable. And so, what does He say? So, therefore, it is lawful. Not even lawful. It is... Um, desired to do good on the Sabbath. Why? Because of mankind's value in the eyes of God. We, humanity, is valuable. All human life is valuable. It's valuable in God's eyes. It should be valuable in our eyes. Therefore, Jesus says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Doing good on the Sabbath, David Turner writes, is equivalent to prioritizing compassion over sacrifice. So I want you to look in your Bible, back up just a couple of verses to verse 7. Remember last week when Jesus quoted Hosea 6, verse 6, which says, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice? Right? This is, he's putting that into practice now. He's showing them what that looks like in real life. Forget about this little, you know, check this off your list of things to do and make sure you abide by the letter of the laws perfectly. No, no. What's the compassionate thing to do? I'm going to heal this man because that's what he needs, right? That's the merciful, compassionate, kind thing to do. So Jesus commands the man to stretch out his hand and it's not just a command, it's healing, Because it says in the text here that his hand is immediately restored to health. The Greek word there when it says normal or health, the the Greek word is hygiene. 
So it's it, to perfect hygiene. It's just normal like the other one. The other hand was healthy. This hand is now back to good health, just like the other one. And so you see clearly the goal of the Pharisees, because what do they do in verse 14? This is just like, you can't believe this verse is in there. You, you read the story, right? Jesus just healed a guy. They should be rejoicing, right? They should be happy. Well, what are they doing? Look at verse 14. Just read it for yourself. They left. They took counsel, so they're, they're huddling, right? Well, this isn't good. How can we, this, this didn't work at all. How can we get him in trouble? How can, we, how can we do something to Jesus? Right? Forget the fact that here's a man who's probably overjoyed because he just got healed. He's happy. Why aren't the, why aren't the religious leaders happy? Shouldn't they be? Right? They should be. But they're not because their only goal is to destroy Jesus. They don't care anything about the people, anything about their needs. Leon Morris wrote that their opposition was so bitter that nothing less than death for Jesus would satisfy them. A curious reaction to a miracle of healing, even if it was done on a Sabbath. And it was a curious action for men who were so keen on keeping the Sabbath law. Right? So, so get this. I read this in another, another book that was really, really um, profound. David Turner, he says, At any rate, it's not a little ironic that a dispute over the finer points of the Sabbath law leads the Pharisees to make a plan to break the sixth commandment. Isn't that interesting? You know what commandment number six is? Do not murder. Right? Pretty, pretty straightforward. Ten commandments, top ten, right? And they're, they're arguing about keeping the law when they're planning to break the law in a profound way. So it makes no sense, but it shows you who these people are. This is who a Pharisee is. They don't care about the people, and they really, ultimately, they don't care about the law. They just care about what benefits them and how they can get at Jesus. That's all they care about. So... We don't want to do like that. We don't want to be like a Pharisee. We want to be like Jesus. Love your neighbor. Do good. Do good to your neighbor. Which takes us to point number two, paragraph number two. Live like Jesus. Again, almost sounds too simple to even put down there, right? Love your neighbor. Live like Jesus. This is like Christianity. Read the Bible. First day of class, you know, 101. Love your neighbor. Live like Jesus. Right, sounds too easy to be true, but that's what it's that's what it's all about. If you look at verse fifteen on down to leading into this quote from Isaiah, Jesus is fully aware of the Pharisees. He nothing's surprising him. He knows about their opposition, but but look this is where we start to see his reaction. Jesus is aware of the opposition, but he doesn't concern himself with it. You see that? He just goes away. It's like, well, y'all just do, do whatever plot you're going to do, but I'm going over here. And, and look what happens. When he goes away from there, what happens? A bunch of people follow him. And what happens to them? Every one of them that's sick gets healed. Right? And presumably it could still be a Sabbath day, but 
That doesn't matter. Because what's Jesus about? I'm going to teach in the synagogue. I'm going to preach the gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to heal every sickness and disease. That's what Jesus is about because Jesus is demonstrating kindness, mercy, compassion. Right? He's valuing the people. So He goes away. He heals all these people. And He warns them not to tell who He was. He does that all the time, right? I'm going to heal you. Don't tell anybody. How are you going to How are you going to do that? If Jesus just heals you, you're going to really not going to tell anybody. No, you're going to tell everybody. But what's his point? It's not the time yet. My time hasn't arrived. I have other things that are going to happen. I have a plan. Jesus is saying I've got a plan, and it's it's a good one, and it's going to work. So just don't tell anybody who I am. But, you know, we doubt that really happened. Because when someone gets healed, they talk about it. Which, on a side note, let me just mention this. That goes for spiritual healing also. The greatest motivation for testifying about the goodness of God should be your own salvation. Your own forgiveness. Has Jesus saved you? Are you forgiven? Are you going to heaven? Tell somebody. And, and honestly, nobody, preacher or anybody else, nobody should have to tell you to tell somebody that Jesus Christ has saved you from hell. I shouldn't have to tell you to do that. Nobody should have to tell me to do that. It should be that big of a deal that I'm just naturally going to tell people, right? Because it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Heaven is a real big deal. So Jesus and His healing and His teaching and preaching, His life, His ministry, all this is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah, which is not a surprise. Because right here in this text, beginning in verse 18, going down to verse 21, is a quote from Isaiah 42. The first few verses of Isaiah 42. As I said before, this is the longest sustained quotation of the Old Testament in the whole Gospel of Matthew, right here. And it's very important, not just because it's just cluing us in further and further that Jesus really is the Messiah, but it is giving us another clear insight into the truth about how we should respond to opposition. Because how does Jesus respond? So look right here at this quote. I'm going to try to summarize these verses in the way that, uh, the way that Isaiah is quoted here in this Gospel. God the Father, if you look at the beginning of verse 18, God the Father has chosen His child, His servant, and this one is beloved and is well-pleasing to the Father. He possesses the Spirit of the Father as He proclaims justice to the nations. But, but here's the point right here. Look at verse 19. He's not quarrelsome. He's not loud. He doesn't make a scene in the city streets. See, this, this is the part that kind of hurt my feelings. Drew, I'm just telling you. This, when I read it, the more I read it, it's like, hmm. 
I mean, I don't always make a scene in the city streets, but I mean, sometimes I, I'm loud and, you know, I'm loud when nobody's around. That, that's even worse, right? And so this is convicting. The Messiah, Jesus, He's not quarrelsome. He's not loud. He doesn't make a scene. The text says His voice is not heard in the streets. Robert Gundry wrote about this. He said, The, the persecuted Jesus, and that's an important descriptor, the persecuted Jesus does not seek justice by taking His cause to the public, neither should His persecuted disciples. Like Him, they are to proclaim justice, not seek it. And Turner follows that up and says, Christians today have a great deal to learn from their Lord on this matter. Their course of life, their course of life is likewise to be that of sacrificial service. And, and I just like mark that out, uh, that quote where it says, Christians today have a great deal to learn. I was going to mark that out. Uh, Mike McCormick has a great deal to learn on this matter. And you can fill in your own name as you see fit. But I, I, I read this, and the more I see the description of who Jesus is, who the Messiah is, how He conducts Himself. And, and by the way, is there, has there ever been another person who has been more persecuted than Jesus? You know, before I start to think that my, my difficulties are so great and so challenging, has anyone been persecuted more than Jesus? I can't think of one. So if He is going to respond this way, then I should certainly follow that example. He is kind. Look at verse 20. The, the symbolism here, battered reed and a, a smoldering wick. Jesus is kind and compassionate to the lowly, to the burdened. He's not going to allow them to be hurt or to be treated poorly. He will be ultimately victorious. And then in the very last verse, verse 21, all the nations are going to find hope in this Messiah, the name of Jesus. Isn't that where we find our greatest hope through salvation and forgiveness of sins? It's in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus so in his name, this this is a, a tremendous prophecy that has been fulfilled in you know in such clear terms. In his name, the nations will hope. We find all our hope in Jesus. That's where we should be looking. When I have opposition, when you have opposition, especially and particularly spiritual opposition because everything is ultimately spiritual and, and by the way guess what you know I'm, I'm getting ready to preach this text and I'm um, last night I'm reading this morning I'm reading guess what happens this morning this morning just between the hours of say 6.30 and 9 what happens this morning anybody guess nothing went right <laughs> 
right? Of course, right? Because that, that's what happens. You know, and a bunch of, it's not anything major, but a bunch of little things. Just little annoying, aggravating little inconveniences, right? Because that's how our enemy works. Oh, you're, you're uh, trying to be more like Jesus? Trying to respond correctly to opposition? Okay. Well, here, let me throw these things in your path and see what you do with them. That happens every, every Sunday morning. That's what happens. But we have to know how to respond. And the best way to know how to respond is to know who to follow. Leon Morris wrote this beautiful statement. I thought I'd put it up here for you. It says, In the end, the peoples of the world will come to see that the one in whom they must put their hope is the servant of God, the emissary of love, who effectively brings salvation to the downtrodden. You want to know how you figure out the best way to respond to opposition? Look at Jesus. You know, every week it seems like this, this same, regardless of the text, regardless of the, the thrust of the message, it all ends up going to the same place. What, what is our biggest need? What should we do before we do anything else? We should run to Jesus. Every single week it's just, it says in a different way, in a, in a different context, but the same message every single week. You need to get closer and closer and closer to Jesus. That's where your hope lies. There's this um, one of the greatest resources I have. This is the coolest. I don't know how long it took to put this book together, but it's one of the most interesting books I own. And it's a it's about this thick, about like this, a big reference book, and it's. It's a commentary on everywhere in the New Testament where the Old Testament is referenced or quoted. And it puts those two things together. Like this part, like, like right here, Isaiah 42 is quoted in Matthew 12. And it just gives pages of this is the context of why that was happening. And here's how he's using this in this, in this particular situation. It's so helpful. And so reading that, I, I ran across... Um, how all this works to look toward Jesus. Like, what does this teach me about Jesus? When I read Isaiah 42 and this prophecy about the Messiah, and then I get to Matthew 12, and I see Matthew use that prophecy when he's talking about Jesus, how does that point me in the direction of Jesus? And what does that teach me about my Savior? And here's what I found out. Matthew views Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of the role of this Spirit-anointed, spirit divinely chosen, beloved servant of God, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied that would be sent. You know, when you read the whole Old Testament, the prophecy pointing toward Jesus coming to rescue sinners... And so Jesus is going to demonstrate that he, he doesn't resist the opposition. He just doesn't really concern himself with it. Right? It's just like that's not his focus. And, and why would that be? What's our focus? 
well, I just need to do whatever Jesus tells me to do. And, and if people don't like that, well, that's, that's, that's a them problem. That's not a me problem. You know, y'all, if, y'all were, if y'all are upset about that, well, y'all just go over here and be upset. But i got things to do. You know, i got people to talk to. i got a gospel to share. And i got people to, to care for and love. And so, you know, if you, if you don't want to be upset about me doing good for other people or caring about other people, you just sit over there and be upset. But I've got, I'm busy. Right? And, and I found this to be a truth that helps the health of a Christian and helps the health of a church. And here it is. You know, the, the less we concern ourselves with people that are upset with what we're doing and the more we concern ourselves with telling people about Jesus, then, you know, we don't really worry about a whole lot. We don't have time to worry about other things. I'm too busy telling people about Jesus. And I would love to see the day when the church is too busy filling up the waters in the baptismal pool that we don't have time to talk about all this other nonsense. we got so many people getting saved and so many people lining up to be baptized and want to join the church that, that we don't need to concern ourselves with well, what, you know, other, other little trivial details. Because... I just want to tell people about Jesus. And I want to see people get saved and forgiven and raised from death to life. And Jesus gives us that pattern. I'm not going to worry about resisting all this opposition. I'm just not going to concern myself with it. I'm going to treat all those who are outcast and vulnerable, I'm going to treat them with tenderness and gentleness. But then, you know, the more we read the last few verses of this text, here's what we see. Through His resurrection and then His subsequent return from heaven, Jesus demonstrates His conquest over death and that He's going to bring victory and justice for all the nations of the world. Which is why, verse 21 says, in His name the nations will hope. And that brings salvation for everyone who acknowledges His Lordship. You want to know how you get saved? You want to know how you get forgiven? <laughs> call on Jesus. It's, not, it's not, just not that hard, right? You call on Jesus. Because, you remember what I read in Psalm 138 when we first started this service this morning? On the day I called, He answered. That blows my mind. If you're here today and you are struggling and you are not a believer in Jesus and you have have challenges and obstacles and all kinds of things in your pathway and you just don't know what to do, here's something you can try. How about call on Jesus? Because the Bible tells me that if everybody... Romans 10, 13, my favorite verse. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's not hard to understand, is it? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so call. Call on Him. It, it, it really is that simple. Call on the name of Jesus. Because I will tell you from personal experience, you can't even hope to love your neighbor if you don't call on Jesus. And you certainly can't live like Jesus if you hadn't called on Jesus. Just the simplest things that, that we're called to do that are beneficial for us. Love your neighbor. 
In fact, isn't that the foundation of the entire law of God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Isn't that the foundation? Jesus said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament is summed up in those two things. Love God, love others. Which, oddly enough, where did I put it? Right here. That's the whole Old Testament law, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Look at your bulletin. You want to know why the mission of this church is so simple? Love God. Love people. Make disciples. It's not rocket science. God tells us over and over and over what to do and how to do it. Call on Jesus. Love your neighbor. It's that simple. This church exists to do those things. Love God. Love people. Make disciples. You want to know how to respond to opposition? Be like Jesus. It's that easy. Let me pray. Thank you.